Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode contains depictions of suicide, grotesque violence, sexual assault, rape, war, and mature themes. Hello everyone. Welcome to Turning Tides. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. Today's episode will be covering the crucial nation-making period behind the Risorgimento of Italy. Beginning with the rise of Camillo Benso as Prime Minister of Piedmont, through the Second War of Italian Independence, the landing of the Thousand under Garibaldi, and the initial hurdles and obstacles the people encountered during the formation of Italy. The rise of Italy as a nation-state during this time was no coincidence. It was a massive pan-European conspiracy to reject and replace the old order. Every political maneuver and backroom deal during this period brought about, for better or for worse, the nation of Italy. This period would prove to be transformative for the Italian people and their culture. The novels, poetry, and art created during the Risorgimento are still seen as exemplary works of Italian artistry today. Although artistic expression flourished during this era, the people also struggled severely. Depravity, exploitation, and murder ran rampant during this period. Piedmont came to Italy under the facade of liberation, but after aiding Italy, ended up remaining as capricious conquerors. Liberal idealism met with the cold, hard facts of governing. The new boss began to look even worse than the old one. So without further ado, this is Turning Tides, Italian Footsteps, Episode 4, The Taxing Road to Nationhood. Camillo Benso, the Count of Cavour, strode into the Prime Minister's office in mid-November, 1852. His heading of this new government was a point of pride for him and his family. Born in 1810, his parents were both lower echelon nobility in Piedmont, which was under French control at the time. Like many northern Italians growing up during this period, Cavour's beliefs were largely shaped by Napoleonic rule. However, unlike most radical thinkers, Cavour did not believe in revolution. He had seen and heard about the worst excesses of revolution and its ability to plunge completely stable societies into chaos. On the other hand, he held a firm belief in liberalization and detested traditional power bases, such as within the clergy and the upper nobility. He believed in the middle path and famously said that, quote, politics was the art of the practicable." Unquote. Cavour's rise to power started in the back rooms of Piedmont's salons and social clubs. Here he made deal after deal with Piedmont's moderate senators and arranged a connubio, or a marriage, between his center-right party and the center-left. This effectively isolated the 
clerical right and the radical left from the rest of parliament, all of whom believed in a generally nondescript version of liberalism, which supported free trade and promoted the interests of business and the middle class. The majority of the population of Piedmont was wary of political parties. This caused the party lines to be blurred, making it difficult to distinguish one from another in Parliament. The Canubio moderated the Piedmontese and subsequent Italian politics for years. However, it damaged Parliament's public image and led directly to an increase in popularity in both far-right and far-left politics following unification. The Canubio would play a major role in Italian politics for years to come, with similar coalitions leading Italy to this day. Cavour's first true test came in early 1854. He had brought forward a bill to suppress monasteries, which provided no educational or charitable benefit to the country. When King Victor Emmanuel II first heard of the bill's contents, he tried to collude with pro-Catholic senators to have it shot down. Cavour was furious. He resigned in anger at this slight, and Victor Emmanuel, having no one he trusted to fill the role, begged Cavour to stay on. This was a victory of the wills for Cavour. The king would never again go against Cavour's clear-headed judgment. In the end, the Calabiana affair ended in a stalemate, as several clerical officials offered cash compensation to the state's treasury, in return for the bill not being taken to the floor. Cavour agreed and won an early moral victory. He did not stop there. He rapidly industrialized Piedmont and built hundreds of miles of railways. He introduced free trade, which led to an expansion in the textile and shipbuilding industries. In the realm of foreign policy, Cavour stood wholeheartedly with the Western powers of France and Great Britain. He knew that only with their support could Piedmont be sufficiently aggrandized. In France, they had just officially crowned a new emperor, Napoleon III. He wished to remake his uncle's empire as best he could, starting with Italy. He referred to Italy as a, quote, second fatherland, unquote, and was himself a member of the Carbonari in the 1820s and 30s. He remembered how Italy fed and populated his uncle's armies, and how Marat reigned at Naples. He already nominally controlled the Papal States, having liberated Rome in 1849 against Mazziniism. Meanwhile, Russia and Great Britain were engaged in the first true Cold War, the Great Game, as they both vied for diplomatic supremacy in East Asia and Persia especially. This stalemate would eventually boil over into open war. Great Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire would invade the Crimean Peninsula in order to curb Russian power in 1855. In Austria, the burst of violence that had plagued the people in 1848 had subsided throughout most of the empire. Unfortunately, violence was constant in their Italian provinces. In Milan, an attempted Mazzinian uprising was put down in 1852. The ringleaders were flogged in public and then hung. In 1854, a similar revolt happened in Mantua. It was also put down with unnecessary violence by the Austrians. Mazzini, once the poster child for Italian revolution, was slowly seeing his influence ebb. 
as more and more of his revolts failed to elicit public support in any major way. Meanwhile, Giuseppe Garibaldi was living a semi-nomadic existence, traipsing through the Pacific and revisiting South America on many sea voyages. For nearly two years, his life was spent in this fashion, until the spring of 1854, when Garibaldi returned to permanently reside in Italy. His first stop was his hometown of Nice, or Niza, where he spent time with his children and aging mother. In that same year, Piedmont's parliament had approved an expeditionary force to be sent to Crimea and represent Piedmont in the war against the Russian Empire. Its original leader was meant to be Prince Ferdinand, the Duke of Genoa, but he unexpectedly died of ill health a week before the departure date at 32 years old. Alfonso La Marmora, the former chief of staff, was placed in charge of the expedition of 21,000. His force ended up seeing combat several times in Crimea and sustained nearly 2,000 casualties throughout the course of the expedition. The men who fought there returned home as heroes, and Piedmont ingratiated itself with France and Great Britain. Austria was inconspicuously absent from the conflict. Russia expected their support, having helped crush the Hungarian Revolution in 1849. Austria ended up supporting the Allies, but they were noncommittal about that too. In the end, they alienated themselves from the rest of Europe, discovering that not making a choice was a choice in itself. The Treaty of Paris, signed in March of 1856, brought about the end of a short yet incredibly devastating war. During a conflict which lasted only two years, over 600,000 people were killed or maimed on the battlefields of present-day Ukraine. This war exemplified the failings of reactionary autocracy, as time after time, Russian armies were met with defeat, not only on the battlefield, but on the stage of world opinion. Cavour attempted to entice France and Great Britain into alliance against Austria. This was a misstep for Cavour, as Britain considered it unduly aggressive. Unlike Britain, Napoleon saw this as an opportunity and began to covertly fraternize with Cavour about the subject of Italy. Garibaldi remained detached from such events. He used part of the money from his sea voyages to buy the northern half of the small island of Caprera, where he lived and worked as a goat herd until the time was ripe for him to set sail for the Italian mainland once again. His first inklings of trouble came in 1857, and it came as it usually did from the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Ferdinand II, La Bomba, was still in absolute control. Little was done to improve the lives of regular citizens. Very few public works were initiated. And the Camorra, the Neapolitan Mafia, controlled the day-to-day -day lives of the hard-working citizens. Conditions were so atrocious in the kingdom that in 1856, France and Great Britain took the unprecedented step to break all diplomatic relations with Ferdinand. Their main gripe was with the nearly 20,000 noble prisoners languishing in the island dungeons of the Mediterranean. 
their offenses ranged anywhere from criticizing the state to open conspiracy, the usual offense being the former. The ineptitude and barbarity that the Neapolitan state exhibited degraded the fabric of their society and additionally alienated the army from the rest of society. Settembrini, one of these noble prisoners himself, describes it well, quote, In Lombardy and Venice, there was the foreigner, but the Austrian was strong, not stupid. But we in Naples had fraternal tyranny. It was the priest, the gendarme, the royal judge, the tax gatherer, every employee of government. These men left us no hour of peace, but continually, daily, in the public square and the private chamber, stood by us, crying like robbers, Give, or I strike. Unquote. Meanwhile, in North Italy, Cavour still had much work to do. He attempted Napoleon in Paris, but now he needed the support of the Democrats who detested Napoleon due to his betrayal of the Roman Republic in 1849. Cavour's first obstacle was Manin, the former leader of Venice's two-year-long rebellion against Austrian domination. After Cavour gained Manin's backing, he met with Garibaldi, who surprisingly agreed that Italy should be its own nation under King Victor Emmanuel II. Garibaldi had long been drifting away from his initial Mazzinian principles. His love of the Piedmontese king and his anger at Mazzini over the fall of the Roman Republic eventually swayed him to Cavour's cause. The first unofficial political action headed by the moderate and democratic power bases was the formation of the National Society. It was designed to smuggle patriotic Lombards from Austrian-controlled Italy into Piedmont to be trained in the Royal Army. Manin signed off on the creation of this society while he was on his deathbed. The society was truly that. It encompassed men from all corners of Italy who believed wholeheartedly in Italian unity and liberation. It was promoted in secret by Cavour and the Piedmontese government. The details were hush-hush. When riding to La Farina, the society's Sicilian treasurer, he said as much, quote, Make your national society, and we shall not have to wait long for our opportunity. If I am questioned in Parliament or by diplomats, I shall deny you, like Peter, and say, I know him not, unquote. The society's activities were so successful that tens of thousands of Lombard men were smuggled and enlisted into Piedmont's army, and many of these same men would go on to fight throughout the peninsula. The south of Italy was Mazzini's main concern now. He and his party of radicals would continually attempt to sow dissent among the citizens here. It reached a boiling point when a soldier in the Bourbon army nearly bayoneted King Ferdinand to death in late 1856 during a military review. However, this attack was a solitary incident committed by a single individual. The main efforts of Mazziniism were concentrated on freeing the political prisoners in the many island fortresses in which the Bourbons kept them interned. 
In late June, one such expedition, led by the early socialist Carlo Piscane, succeeded in freeing several hundred prisoners on the island of Panza. They were able to land at Sapri on the Italian mainland, but they were met by the reactionary villagers of the south. To recount what they experienced from G.M. Trevelyan, quote, The liberators found themselves opposed not only by Neapolitan soldiers, but by armed peasants, and even women and children. A pitiless massacre ensued, unquote. The leaders were killed, and the few who were alive were returned to their island prisons. This attack had a resounding effect on northern Italian opinion. Much like John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in America, Carlo Piscane's raid would ensure Italian unity was at the forefront of the minds of the civilian population. In tandem with the National Society, Cavour continued to placate Napoleon III. Cavour had several connections with Napoleon's court, many being the emperor's direct family. His own teenage niece was one of Napoleon's many lovers. Cavour would have signed his soul to the devil himself to get close to Napoleon. But try as he may, Cavour's web of manipulation nearly came to naught. On January 14, 1858, several bombs exploded around Emperor Napoleon's carriage as it was headed toward a Parisian theater. The bombs miraculously did not injure the emperor or empress, but they managed to kill eight people and wound up to 150 others. The man responsible, Felice Orsini, was a former fighter in the Roman Republic and was funded by radical Italian immigrants from England. Upon hearing the news, Cavour exclaimed, quote, If only this is not the work of Italians, unquote. Although Napoleon blamed England and their refugee policy for the assassination attempt, he still demanded that the Piedmont press be silenced. To this, King Victor Emmanuel defiantly wrote to the emperor, quote, Our house has carried its head high for 850 years, and that no one will make me bow it, unquote. Napoleon III thankfully did not share his uncle's temper. Napoleon replied to La Marmora, the messenger, quote, That is what I call courage. Your king is a fine fellow. Unquote. Napoleon's attitude toward his attempted assassin exemplifies the dichotomy of Napoleon III. He sympathized with Orsini and even had several of his letters published in the French press prior to his execution. Within a few months, the diplomatic situation between France and Piedmont returned to pre-bombing levels. Napoleon called on Cavour to meet in secret at his health spa in Polombiers. It was here that the fate of Italy would be decided. Over the course of nine hours, Napoleon and Cavour detailed the way in which the war would start, their plan for the battles to come, and Italy's final form. To quote Cavour himself, The Valley of the Po the Romagna and the Legations would form a kingdom of Upper Italy under the House of Savoy. Rome and its immediate surroundings would be left to the Pope. The rest of the Papal States, together with Tuscany, would form a kingdom of Central Italy. The Neapolitan kingdom would be left unchanged. 
these four Italian states would form a confederation on the pattern of the German Bund, unquote. This would essentially replace Austrian rule with French rule in Italy. Cavour was willing to accept these terms. The removal of Austrian troops from Italy would be worth it. The final peace was to be agreed on after the Italian and French armies marched on Vienna. They had planned for a long war, and eventually, France would need to be compensated with Savoy and possibly Nice. Additionally, a stipulation of the alliance was that the 16-year-old Maria Clotilde of Savoy would have to wed the 37-year-old Jerome Bonaparte. King Victor Emmanuel needed continual prodding from Cavour to accept this indecent proposal. Cavour said it was in, quote, the supreme interest of the state, the future of your dynasty, of Piedmont and of all Italy, unquote, that the proposal be accepted. It eventually was, and the path toward war began. On January 1st, 1859, Napoleon hosted a ball. He opened the evening with a passively threatening statement to the Austrian ambassador, saying that he wished their two empires had, quote, better relations, unquote. Europe's response to his sinister remark was immediate. England was clutching their pearls at the thought of another French empire invading North Italy and destabilizing the territory. They would stand by the 1815 Congress of Vienna. At this, Napoleon III, quote, shrank before the storm he had raised, says G.M. Trevelyan. In April, both England and France recommended that Piedmont and Austria decrease their military and stop mobilizing simultaneously. Cavour was furious. He felt rightfully betrayed by France. His agent provocateurs were already attempting to foment dissent in Massa and Carrara, and the National Society was promising tens of thousands of native Lombards the chance to fight for their homes. Cavour contemplated suicide for many hours. He sat beside a loaded pistol, ready to go to war against the wishes of England and France. All of his carefully laid plans seemed to be unraveling. Years of political deals and morally questionable decisions had brought him here. On April 23rd, to Cavour's sheer delight, Austria refused the diplomatic entreaties of Great Britain and delivered an ultimatum to Piedmont. They had three days before Austria's army would invade. On April 27th, the Austrian Kaiser declared war on Piedmont. France would ride to the side of its small ally. Cavour's scheme had worked to perfection. The Piedmont Royal Army had gone through intense changes during the period between 1848 and 1860. They were a completely professional army capable of holding their own against Austria, but not forever. They needed help from the French if they were going to seriously threaten the Austrian position in Lombardy and Venice. Piedmont's forces were armed with Model 1844 muskets, an outdated rifle at this point. However, 
The Bersaglieri had the latest in rifling technology, armed with the 1856 carbine and the French miniball. Likewise, the artillery was smoothbore, making it relatively inaccurate. The plan was to hold as long as possible until the French were able to concentrate in and around Piedmont. With the Piedmont army of nearly 80,000 and the French army of nearly 200,000, they could then take the offensive and give battle to Austria. The plans were drawn up and the assignments were given. The main port of call for the French army would be Genoa. There, the most technologically advanced and well-led force of its time would be headed by Napoleon personally. The infantry and artillery branches were each outfitted with the latest rifling advances. The planning for the movement of the men was precise. From April 26th to May 12th, 73,000 men were moved from France and North Africa to the Italian port of Genoa by boat, all whilst thousands more marched overland through the western Alpine passes or boarded train cars. The Austrian army was also very advanced and formidable. However, the army's luster had recently begun to fade. With the passing of Radetzky and interpersonal rivalries increasing, the Austrian army of 1860 was a shell of its former self. Radetzky's replacement was Gaiolai. As war seemed more and more likely, Gaiolai begged to be relinquished of his command and for the position to be given to someone more capable. He was a very able organizer, but had little experience running a field army in times of war. The Austrian authorities refused to replace him and instead ordered him forthwith to advance on Turin. At these orders, Gaiolai dallied and leisurely marched across the Italian countryside. By the time he crossed the Cesia River, nowhere near Turin, 110,000 French soldiers were already in Italy. The time for offensive maneuvers by the Austrians was over. They quickly yielded the initiative to the Franco-Piedmont alliance. By late May, the Allied offensive truly began. They enjoyed victory at Montebello in the first battle of the war. Farther north, Garibaldi had formed the Hunters of the Alps, a force of radicals and patriots composed entirely of volunteers. They were ordered to invade Lombardy from the extreme left of the Allies' main army position. 3,000 volunteers were split between Garibaldi's four lieutenants, Medici, Bixio, Cosens, and Tur. Their lightning operations in the Alps seriously hindered Austrian communications and movement. They first struck at Veris, then again at Como, where they caused a larger Austrian detachment to flee in terror. Garibaldi went on to attempt to capture the fortress of Leveno, but his men were exhausted and had been fighting sporadically and marching for over a week. These minor victories frightened Gaiolai so much that he sent over 10,000 men north to check Garibaldi. Unfortunately for Gaiolai, Garibaldi evaded all enemies sent against him. These 10,000 would be sorely missed at the coming Battle of Magenta, the first of two hellish engagements which would decide the future of Italy. Meanwhile, Garibaldi would continue to elude his opponents, and eventually capture the city of Brescia, 
right under Guyalai's nose. The hunters of the Alps grew rapidly to over 12,000 soldiers, but they were shuffled to the rear by mid-June. The Franco-Piedmont alliance had been progressing slowly in their attempts to find a suitable crossing for their 200,000-man army. The Allied vanguard was composed of Chialdini's 4th Division. The Piedmontese were literally at the very front of the invasion. On May 30th at Palestro, their soldiers advanced against Austria for the first time since the counterattack at Navarra. After a three-hour-long fight, the Austrian brigade was finally defeated. The next day, Field Marshal Zobel attempted to retake the town with two divisions. Chialdini, a promising young Italian commander, skillfully held the town against multiple Austrian assaults, while the French Zouave regiment, headed by King Victor, crashed on Austria's left flank. This repulsed the entire Austrian line. They were now in full retreat, and the Allies were securely across the Sesia River. The same road down which Charles Albert retreated was now the procession for a grand advance. The failure to take back Palestro paralyzed Guyalai with fear. He was convinced the French were everywhere. Kaiser Franz Joseph now joined his army as they attempted to hold the line around Magenta and Abiate Grasso. At Magenta, around 40,000 to 60,000 Austrians were attacked by an equally matched French force who attempted to cross the Ticino River in force. The bridge across this river was the site of the initial French attack, in which French grenadiers and zouaves attempted to push the Austrians from their entrenched urban positions. The fighting was horrific, with French guns obliterating Austrian soldiers, as precise Austrian rifle fire killed hundreds of Frenchmen. The turning point came when French general, MacMahon, crossed the Ticino with his corps to advance on the Austrian flank. His force succeeded in squeezing the Austrians out of Magenta and beyond. The battle was over, and the devastation was apparent. 9,700 Austrians and 4,500 Frenchmen were killed, wounded, or captured. The lopsidedness of the numbers is owed particularly to the French artillery, whose accurate artillery fire rendered the Austrians, who were still using smoothbore cannons in many cases, defenseless. Guyalai was quickly removed from command, as the rest of the Austrian army, bloodied but not destroyed, fell back through Milan and into the quadrilateral. The new Austrian commander would be Kaiser Franz Joseph. He would attempt to regain some control over his defeated army. The Kaiser could have used the natural defenses of the quadrilateral to hold the Allied invasion at bay, as Rudetsky had done in 1848, but he was fickle and impatient. He wanted to move against the Allies and dispute their recent capture of Milan on June 8th. As the French and Italian soldiers captured Milan, small-scale uprisings were flaring up in the duchies. Franz Joseph still believed he could beat the French army in the open field, and he felt he had to, in order to prevent further rebellions. Now that the campaign had truly begun, the Allies were experiencing logistical problems similar to those which plagued Charles Albert in 1848. Although Cavour vastly expanded the Piedmont rail system 
it was not able to meet the demand of the army during the invasion. The French navy was even forced to deliver rail cars via Genoa to keep the flow of supplies and men running. By late June, Franz Joseph called an advance all up the line. He intended to take Milan back by force. At the same time, the Allied armies were about to cross the Ticino upriver. The two forces collided unexpectedly at the sleepy little town of Solferino. The fight that followed would be the largest and most deadly since the carnage of Leipzig. More than 130,000 French and Piedmontese soldiers met the Austrian army of similar strength on the battlefield on June 24th. The Battle of Solferino and its consequences are etched in history. It was the incarnate of destruction. There was little to no maneuverability since the armies were not expecting to find one another. The French left concentrated its forces on the Spia d'Italia. To give you some idea of what this horrific battle was like, the following excerpt is from A Memory of Solferino by Henry Dunant. Quote, The Austrians, from their vantage point on the hills, swept the French with artillery fire. Facing the thunder of these batteries, the French rushed forward like an opposing storm sweeping the plain. Every mound, every height, every rocky crag is the scene of a fight to the death. Bodies lie in heaps on the hills and in the valleys, Austrian and allies trampling each other underfoot, killing one another on piles of bleeding corpses, felling their enemies with their rifle butts, crushing skulls, ripping bellies open with the saber and bayonet. A little further on, a squadron of cavalry, which gallops by, crushing dead and dying beneath its horse's hooves. One poor wounded man has his jaw carried away, another his head shattered, a third who could have been saved had his chest beaten in. Here come the artillery. The guns crash over the dead and wounded, strewn pell-mell on the ground. Brains spurt under the wheels. Limbs are broken and torn. Bodies mutilated past recognition. The soil is literally puddled with blood, and the plain littered with human remains. Unquote. This was the battle that would decide the fate of Italy. The French carried the small town of Solferino, but through some of the most miserable conditions soldiers have had to endure. The French artillery again delivered accurate and devastating fire. However, on the French right, Neil's corps was in a similar hellish predicament outside the town of Robecco. They failed to capture the town despite the resolve of the French grenadiers and zouaves. Farther along the line on the extreme French left, the Piedmontese army met the Austrian 8th Corps near Madonna della Scoperta and San Martino. Much like at Solferino, both forces surprised one another and Austria was able to take up much stronger positions. The Italian general, Mollard, decided not to wait for the rest of his division and marched to attack with his few men. 
The disorganized and weak attacks made by the Italians were all held up by ferocious Austrian resistance. The attack on Madonna della Scoperta went much better, the Royal Guard of Piedmont storming the village. By 7.30, the last assault on San Martino was about to begin. The concentrated Italian front finally managed to push the Austrians off the hill after storming the Cassina Contracania. The fighting was over, with Allied armies in command of the field. The battlefield was an absolute nightmare. Over 40,000 people were mangled or killed in the devastating 17-mile, day-long fight. The losses appalled Napoleon. There could not be another battle like Solferino. After the fight, Henry Dunant, who was moved by the suffering of the soldiers, started the International Red Cross and created the guidelines for the Geneva Convention. The French emperor met with Franz Joseph in secret and established the peace of Villafranca. His men's suffering was clearly on Napoleon's mind. Likewise, the possibility of Prussia intervening in the war seriously forced Napoleon's hand. He could not afford a fight on two fronts. He showed once more that he was nothing like his uncle. Cavour was outraged by the terms of the deal at Villafranca. In it, it stated that Venice was to remain an Austrian dependency. Lombardy was transferred to France, then to Piedmont, and the dukes were to be reappointed. On top of this, the original plan to form an Italian confederation under the Pope's control, was kept. Cavour felt betrayed by these conditions. He vehemently advised King Victor to reject the treaty and continue the war alone. The king outright refused, and a violent episode is said to have taken place between the two men. Cavour resigned immediately, stormed out, and met with the Hungarian revolutionary leader, Kossuth, to whom he said, quote, the treaty shall not be executed. I will become a conspirator. I will become a revolutionary. But the treaty shall not be executed. No. A thousand times no. Never. Never. Unquote. The terms drawn up in the treaty were not in keeping with the reality on the ground. The central Italian revolutions of 1859 were uprisings headed by the bourgeoisie leadership of the new business class in Italy. Cavour exploited his connections with these revolutionary leaders to build a coalition of pro-Piedmont statesmen. These leaders would lobby the international community toward fusion with Piedmont against the wishes of the Treaty of Villafranca. With this plan in place, Cavour resigned as prime minister and retired to public life, although he knew he would return. The votes in the central Italian duchies for union with Piedmont were carnival-like, with voting happening at the same time as massive celebrations for fusion. Meanwhile, Cavour had a new pet project in mind and said as much. Quote, England has done nothing yet for Italy. It is her turn now. I shall take Naples in hand." Unquote. Within England, the political situation was precarious. Always interested in maintaining a balance of power, England felt an enlarged Piedmont would only increase French hegemony in the Mediterranean. A unified Italy, however, was something that could check the power of France 
while also presenting Great Britain with a potentially powerful ally in the Mediterranean. Garibaldi and his hunters were not allowed to function following the peace of Villafranca. Garibaldi would find himself in the Tuscan state, leading the new republic's militia and ready to strike at the papacy at the slightest provocation. He was traveling to the same places in which he ran like a convict ten years ago. Near Ravenna, he met the peasants who attempted to save Anita's life. From here, he planned to invade the Papal States every other week. It took a great deal of coaxing from the leader of Tuscany, Baron Racasoli, to prevent a diplomatic incident, which could have led to a renewed war with Austria and possibly France. Garibaldi managed to be patient as he received news from the Two Sicilies. In the Two Sicilies, Ferdinand had appeared less and less in public following the attempt on his life in December 1856. As he continued to oppress his people, war broke out between Piedmont and Austria. He felt it necessary to deliver some concessions and attempt to ingratiate himself diplomatically with France and Great Britain. Sixty of the 20,000 political prisoners who were being held by Ferdinand were allowed transport to America to live there in permanent exile. A mutiny aboard the ship caused it to be redirected to Great Britain. There, the men were set free. From here, the noble prisoners became guests of British high society, especially future Prime Minister Lord John Russell, whose support played a crucial role in Italy's unification under Piedmont. Back in Naples, Ferdinand's health was steadily declining, an unknown illness was eating away at the inside of his body, much like the corruption which was eating away at the once proud house of Bourbon. Outside the cities, the people lived still in a quasi-feudalistic state, with communities completely devoted to local chieftains or men of property. The few places where industry reigned, in Sicily sulfur mines, for example, suffered some of the worst possible working conditions. As Ferdinand lay dying, his last instructions to his son, Francis, were to trust in the white flag and oppression, trust in the 100,000-man army who were completely devoted to the Bourbon cause, and trust in General Falangieri, the man who conquered Sicily in 1848. Francis II began his reign ignominiously. Henry Elliot, the British minister to the two Sicilies, recounts a very telling story of the king receiving homage from his subjects for the first time. Quote, A very old man caught his foot in the carpet and fell flat on his face to the feet of the king, who neither stirred to help him nor allowed a muscle on his face to move. Unquote. The one person who seemed to understand the situation clearly was Francis's Bavarian wife, Maria Theresa, she supported the liberal reforms which General Filangieri initially proposed at the start of Francis's reign. Meanwhile, Francis was stuck vacillating between liberal and reactionary members of his court. He was at a loss. To make matters worse, for the indecisive king, Cavour approached him with a proposition to form an alliance against Austria in 1859. This was impossible for the king. Francis was in secret talks, not just with the Pope, but with Austria and the expelled Dukes of Central Italy. They planned to destroy Piedmont and return the map to its pre-1859 state when the time was right. 
For the common person, living in the two Sicilies, everything had a price. There was no complaint to lodge, petition to address, nor license to acquire that didn't require them to shell out money to the local authority figures. The worst offenders were the aforementioned Camorra. Those who refused to pay their fee for protection were usually found stabbed to death outside of town. The police, usually incredibly vigilant, were conspicuously absent during these events. The rest of the time, the police and the army of the two Sicilies were vicious. Its rank and file were filled with all sorts, the standard soldier being very well equipped. The rot of the Bourbon system only began to show itself with the high command, with many of the generals being incredibly passive and cautious. The best troops in the army were the foreign Swiss carabiners, who fought ostensibly as mercenaries. In addition to these Swiss soldiers, the two Sicilies now had an increasing number of Austrians in their ranks. These so-called Bavarian regiments were composed exclusively of former Austrian troops, further supplementing the Bourbon ranks. Back in Piedmont, Rattazzi served as the inefficient interim prime minister. Everyone knew it wouldn't be long before Cavour returned. When he did, he witnessed the climax of events across the peninsula. France had shifted its attitude toward the annexation of the central Italian duchies and the Romagna. The papal states were being outright antagonistic toward France, and many bishops considered all the problems in Italy to be the result of Napoleonic scheming. Due to this shift in papal opinion, Napoleon was now willing to accept Piedmont's annexation of central Italy. In return, the city of Nice and the lands of Savoy would have to be ceded to France. In March of 1860, Cavour signed over the territories to Napoleon in exchange for the annexation of Tuscany, Parma, Modena, and Romagna. Piedmont had tripled its size within a few months. In exchange, the House of Savoy had sold its ancestral home and their family name. Cavour even confessed privately that this act was unconstitutional, but the die was cast. Garibaldi, however, was furious. He protested to Piedmont's parliament that he had, quote, been made a foreigner in his own country, unquote. He would never trust Cavour again. He even wanted to outfit an expedition to Nice and smash the ballot boxes for the planned plebiscites. He was talked down from the ledge by his friends, Crispy and Bertani, who convinced him to turn his attention to another target which was about to explode at any moment, the island of Sicily. The island of Sicily has always been considered a crossroads of trade, travel, and history. Every corner of the island has a unique tradition and backstory. Many Sicilians from the east, for example, can trace their heritage back to the original Greek colonists. Meanwhile, in the south and west, the Saracen rulers of the island can still be seen in the names, the faces of the inhabitants, and the architecture of the places. Additionally, there were many Albanian immigrant communities and Phoenician admixture from the Middle East. It is an island steeped in tradition, with folklore and superstitious beliefs that have survived thousands of years. The island is also incredibly difficult to control. Historically, the population has often proved that they would rather die than live in subjugation. 
They stood by their faith and their inherent natural freedoms. Whether they were fighting during the Vesper Rebellion of the Middle Ages or fighting the fascists during World War II, during the Bourbon's rule, the question, when shall we be rid of this infamous yoke, could be heard throughout the island. Sicilians had serious problems with Bourbon taxes and Bourbon soldiers who often treated Sicilians as subhuman. However, their main gripe was with military service. The Bourbons had long stopped attempting to conscript Sicilians, with only one in ten Bourbon soldiers hailing from the island. Bourbon troops would not even patrol the interior. Very few Sicilians from the hills would have even seen Bourbon soldiers. The regular Sicilian cared very little for Italian unification. It was not something that was even discussed. They would fight for whomever would help them remove the Bourbons and give them some autonomy. If this future liberator behaved as a tyrant, the Sicilians would fight them too. The few politically active Sicilians lived in the cities and were constantly watched and monitored by the Palmertian chief of police, Maniscalco. The main agitator in the group was Francesco Crispi, a lifelong rabble-rouser, as well as the future prime minister. Prior to 1859, he was indispensable in bomb-making activities and political agitation in Palermo. Mazzini exerted his influence on the island as well, first calling for Italian unity, then contemplating whether a kingdom was what was needed. A man named Rizzo, a local plumber, attempted a rebellion, but Palermo failed to rise, and the Bourbons were ready to crush the nascent insurrection. Rizzo and his few men barricaded themselves inside a convent, but the doors were blown open by Bourbon troops, and Rizzo was captured after being mortally wounded. In mid-April, 13 of the rebels were executed by firing squad, including Rizzo's senior father. Several days later, Maniscalco came to the side of the dying Rizzo and begged for names and accomplices, claiming that if Rizzo gave them up, his father would be spared. It was only after his deathbed confession that Rizzo came to know the awful truth. He died in agony, filled with anger, wishing to kill Maniscalco. But his death, the death of his fellow rebels, and the death of his father were not in vain. The news of their uprising had reached Piedmont, and more importantly, the ears of Garibaldi. The dangerous and illegal idea to invade Sicily was first proposed by Crispi and Garibaldi's other Mazzinian friend, Agostino Bertani. Garibaldi had contemplated sailing to Sicily since 1848 and it had been a pet project for Mazzini while he was in exile in London. The plan was hatched. They would leave from Genoa on two steamers for a roundabout trip to somewhere in Sicily. One thousand hand-picked soldiers, mostly from the hunters of the Alps, would accompany them. Delays and bad weather held back the expedition, and to compound on this, the 200 Enfield rifles meant for Garibaldi's men were held up by Diazeglio in Milan. Instead of these relatively good rifles, the muskets they acquired from the National Society were atrocious. G.M. Trevelyan said of the rifles in Garibaldi and the Thousand, quote, They were smooth-bore muskets, rusty with age, 
which had been converted from flintlock into percussion, and finally sold as obsolete by the military authorities. Unquote. As Garibaldi's 1,000 hand-picked men were restlessly waiting to depart, King Victor Emmanuel sent a final olive branch to King Francis of the Two Sicilies, imploring him to join the national platform and seek moderate reforms for his backward kingdom. In the letter, King Victor says, quote, We have reached a time in which Italy can be divided into two powerful states of the north and of the south. But in order to realize this conception, it is, I think, necessary that your majesty abandon the cause you have held hitherto. But if you allow some months to pass without attending to my friendly suggestion, your majesty will perhaps experience the bitterness of the terrible words, too late, unquote. King Victor was playing the diplomatic game with one hand and remaining complicit in Garibaldi's planned expedition with the other. As the thousand were about to sail, the news of Rizzo's failed insurrection in Palermo reached Genoa. Garibaldi was about to call off the entire expedition. Crispy was the only one who seemed certain that new facts would emerge. Lo and behold, on April 29th, Heaps of telegrams, letters, and dispatches from unknown individuals in Sicily arrived in Genoa. More than likely, the documents were forged by Crispi, but Garibaldi now believed that a rebellion was alive and well outside the walls of Palermo. On April 30th, the anniversary of his victory against the French outside of Rome, Garibaldi said with eyes flashing, We will go. Cavour believed the thousands' chances were slim to none. They were sailing toward a fight where they were outnumbered twenty to one, where they would have to rely solely on the goodwill of the native Sicilian population for men and supplies. Even Garibaldi's own lieutenants, Bixio and Medici, thought it would be an abject failure. This says a lot of the loyalty that Garibaldi was able to inspire in the men who followed him. The Piedmont authorities secretly met to discuss distancing themselves, publicly and otherwise, from the buccaneering affair. They made it clear to Garibaldi and his men that no embarkation was to happen in the port of Genoa. So Bixio, the organizer of the expedition, would seize the steamers and be met by rowboats filled with the thousand just outside the port. On May 5th, the plan was carried out. The entire city came out to see the quote-unquote secret expedition set off, but as always, there was a hitch. The men assigned by Bixio to bring the ammunition for the muskets never showed up. The entire thousand had not a single round of ammunition, save for the few with personal arms. In spite of this setback, Garibaldi was in full form. He was on the sea once more, aboard the smaller Piedmont, while Bixio commanded the larger, slower Lombardo. They would not cut a direct path to Sicily. They had nowhere near enough food. So they first made their way toward Tuscany, on the coast of Talimone. It was here that Garibaldi reaffirmed his loyalty to King Victor Emmanuel and to Piedmont's supremacy. This detour convinced the Pope that Garibaldi's expedition was truly meant for Rome, in turn, the Pope's fear spread to the Bourbon navy, 
who were unable to locate Garibaldi. Of the thousand, only 33 were considered foreigners. Garibaldi, originally from Nice, now considered himself a foreigner, along with his son, Menotti, who was born in South America. Several were British, four were Hungarian, and 14 were Italians from Trentino. Most of the Italians under arms were from North Italy. Bergamo, a small city in Lombardy, headed the list with 160 combatants. Genoa sent 156 troops and a professional carabiner detachment. Milan sent 72, and Brescia sent 59, not to mention many Pavese, Venetians, Neapolitans, and Sicilians. Most of them were students, and the rest were lawyers, doctors, merchants, engineers, painters, and even ex-priests. Conspicuously absent from the ranks of the thousand was a single peasant. A good portion of them were upper-class bourgeoisie, with a few exceptions of workmen, cobblers, and tradesmen. As they left the Tuscan shore for Sicily, Garibaldi boarded the Piedmont and adorned his red shirt, which was quickly becoming the unofficial uniform of the expedition. Bixio, aboard the Lombardo, smashed a plate over a corporal's face and then said to the entire ship of 750 soldiers, quote, I command here. I am everything. I am Tsar, Sultan, Pope. I am Nino Bixio. I must be obeyed like God. If you dare to shrug your shoulders or to think of mutinying, I will come in my uniform, saber in hand, and cut you to pieces. Unquote. The message was clear to all aboard. The complicity of the Piedmont government is most apparent during this time. At any moment, they could have arrested the entire expedition, but they did not. In fact, Admiral Persano, the leader of the Piedmont fleet, had tabs on Garibaldi the entire time. The Thousand now had the overwhelmingly difficult task of landing somewhere in Sicily and escaping into the mountains, without being intercepted by the Bourbon armed forces. Once there, they believed the Sicilian peasants would flock to their banner. These peasants, long known for rebellious activity, were organized by local landlords and priests into squadre, or squads. The ancient city of Marsala, named and built by the Saracens of North Africa on the ruins of the Phoenician settlement of Lilibium, was where the thousand would land. It was May 11, 1860, when the Piedmont and Lombardo steamed into Marsala's harbor. Conspicuously present with the thousand were two warships of British extraction operating under Admiral Mundy, who arrived that morning on routine patrol. As the Bourbon Navy attempted to intercept the Garibaldini, the sight of Her Majesty's Royal Navy gave the Bourbons pause. This gave Garibaldi the time he needed to quickly disembark under inaccurate long-range naval fire. The people of Marsala initially greeted Garibaldi and his men with a nonplussed attitude. His first official act once inside the city was to proclaim himself as dictator of Sicily, ruling in Victor Emmanuel's name. Italia e Victor Emmanuel was the official catchphrase of the thousand. 
Upon hearing it, the native Marsalans are said to have turned to one another and asked who this strange woman, Talia, was. It was quickly agreed by the locals that Talia was the king's wife and their new queen-to-be. The next morning, the march into Sicily's interior began in earnest. Garibaldi sent out the skilled Sicilian orator, La Massa, to the villages to rouse the population to action. In no time at all, thousands of Sicilians, armed with shotguns, knives, scythes, and pistols, congregated under Garibaldi's banner. Most of these Sicilians were incredibly young, the youngest being adolescents. They were led into war by their local priests and by their landlords. Even with these reinforcements, the Garibaldini were still severely outnumbered. Almost 25,000 Bourbon troops maintained a garrison in Sicily. On the march through the Sicilian countryside to Palermo, Garibaldi came across Bourbon General Landi's force of 3,000 men. It would be the first of many engagements throughout the coming year where Garibaldi would show his offensive prowess. The fight at Calatafimi began with a strung-out regiment of Neapolitan troops advancing, without orders, against Garibaldi. The thousand held the line against the attack. As the Bourbon attack broke up, Garibaldi called for the charge. And for the rest of the fight, the thousand crept their way slowly uphill against the excellent shots of the Neapolitan riflemen. So dogged was the Bourbon resistance that many Bourbon soldiers hurled stones down at the thousand when their ammunition ran out. Bixio felt that the retreat had to be sounded or the entire expedition would fall there in the hills of Sicily, at which Garibaldi said, quote, Here we make Italy or die. Unquote. The final push up the hill ended in Garibaldi's victory. He ended up losing 30 men, and over a hundred more were seriously wounded. Numbers on the Bourbon side were similar. After this loss, Bourbon morale suffered and continued to suffer for most of the year. Landi's column retreated in an orderly fashion, but the entire country was now in revolt, and the populace would pick off several Neapolitan soldiers on the road to Palermo. Around Palermo, Bourbon resistance was at its stiffest. Thousands of troops and gendarmes defended the city, and the Bourbon navy defended the port. The 72-year-old General Lanza was in charge of Palermo's defenses. He unfortunately had no idea what he would do if Garibaldi invaded. He felt his only option was to bomb the city from the shore. To say Garibaldi's arrival in Sicily was welcome would be an understatement. Many native Sicilians were found on their knees, begging for blessings and grace from Garibaldi as he passed. Some Sicilians even asked that he christen their children. Many of the anti-clerical liberals among the thousand looked down on these displays as quote-unquote backward religiosity. Upon arriving at Palermo's gates, Garibaldi quickly realized that the time was not right to storm them. He pulled back to the Piani de Greci, his men completely exhausted and demoralized from days of incessant fighting and skirmishing without proper supplies. At Piani de Greci, Garibaldi set out to divide his forces and lead the Bourbon detachment who was chasing them on a wild goose chase. 
Garibaldi sent a small group of 250 men with two obsolete cannons south as he veered north to march on Palermo with the rest of his men. Nearly 5,000 Bourbon troops were thus misdirected. It wasn't until well into the fight for Palermo that these men turned around. Their absence was critical in the fall of the city and the unification of Italy under Piedmontese leadership. On the approach to Palermo, the most obvious feature one notices is the Conca di Oro, a massive field of lemons, oranges, and cacti. It is one of the great achievements in irrigation, constructed under North African rule in Sicily. In addition to the beautiful plants and citrus, the city was surrounded by massive medieval walls. It was easy to approach, but nearly impossible to enter. However, if the Garibaldini could enter the city, they were sure the citizens would rise and join them on the barricades. The word was spread around the city, and the entire population was abuzz with rumors and noise. Yet somehow, the Bourbons still believed that Garibaldi was headed south for Corleone. It was only on the morning of May 27th, when Garibaldi's men took control of the heart of Palermo, that General Lanza realized how wrong he had been. The Conca di Ora, or Golden Basin, shielded the approach of Garibaldi's men and the attack exploded with the furiosity which Garibaldi carried into all of his fights. The original thousand behaved in an exemplary manner, but the local Sicilian squadre needed intense coaxing to storm the gates. The thousand with the Sicilian squadre in tow fought their way up to the famous spot, the genius of Palermo. This is a stone carving of a man with his breast being devoured by a snake representing Sicily's constant struggle with foreign influence. Once they took the heart of Palermo, Garibaldi and his men immediately began constructing the barricades, with Sicilians and North Italians working hand-in-hand to free Palermo from the Bourbon boogeyman. Likewise, the Bourbons had set to work with their destruction of the city. The naval guns began booming right away, and whole families were executed by infuriated Neapolitan troops. Garibaldi would spend the next few days in the town square, as Sicilians crowded around him in awe. Throughout the bombardment of the city, not a shell hit the building where Garibaldi was staying. This caused many Sicilians to say in wonder that he was, quote, keeping off the shells, unquote. Many Sicilians began to believe Garibaldi was something close to a saint, an idea that persists to this day. In Palermo, the most intense combat occurred around the main road, which connected the city center to the citadel. Here, General Lanza did his best to consolidate his forces, but they were now cut off from food, ammunition, and medicine. On the 28th, The city's jails were opened, and convicts of all varieties flocked to Garibaldi's side. May 29th was the final day of street fighting. On this day, the men of Bergamo managed to take the city's cathedral. Garibaldi's men were now in control of the entire city, save the citadel, and a huge military fort called the Castelmar. Lanza now had 18 to 20,000 men who were all cramped and hungry, not to mention 800 wounded whose conditions were deteriorating by the hour. 
Lonzo finally turned to the British Admiral Mundi, now off the coast of Palermo, to work out a ceasefire. Lonza had had enough. Garibaldi was also at a standstill. He and his men had almost no ammunition left, and they could not hope to hold the city without it. The offer of ceasefire was an absolute gift to Garibaldi. He could now consolidate his position. Meanwhile, the four to 5,000 Bourbon men had returned from the island's interior. They stormed through the gates from which Garibaldi had entered, ignoring the ceasefire that recently went into effect. Garibaldi walked through the fire of the squadre and the Bourbons and furiously poked his watch while he accosted several Bourbon officers. This brought the ceasefire back into effect with relatively few casualties. Garibaldi was miraculously saved again. Aboard the British flagship, Garibaldi skillfully argued for an armistice. On his return, the population of Palermo showed a Spartan-like zeal in building arms, making gunpowder, and erecting barricades. At this point, the Bourbon morale snapped. Desertion was common, especially among NCOs, and Lanza's fear of the civilians kept him in an overcautious stupor. In another round of negotiations, Lanza gave up the mint with all the money inside. Garibaldi then used the money to purchase more ammo. On June 6th, the final capitulation was signed. King Francis did not wish to fight for the island anymore, and the Garibaldini were only getting stronger. As the Sicilians departed for their homes in the hills, thousands of northern soldiers streamed in on Piedmontese naval vessels. They brought hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammo, and with them, modern Enfield rifles. The fight against the Bourbons had now become that much easier. Where there were once only a thousand, there was now a 17,000-strong standing army. The march to Naples could now truly begin. The rest of Europe was watching the events taking place in Sicily with bated breath. In London, there were regular rallies in support of Garibaldi and his troops. An English battalion was even raised and sent to his aid. In France, Napoleon III was wary of Garibaldi and his revolutionary intentions, but he was still unaware of the part Piedmont was playing behind the scenes. In Austria, Franz Joseph was still reeling from the bloody nose he received at Solferino, and he continued to passively send support to King Francis. Russia was so apprehensive that they approached France with an offer of blockade to all Garibaldi transports. King Francis was still precariously holding his title in Naples, and he finally decided to do something. He would choose reform, a constitution, and a tricolor flag. However, it was too late. The constitution was too liberal for the reactionaries and too reactionary for the liberals. This was, as G.M. Trevelyan puts it, tantamount to, quote, changing horses in the bed of a roaring torrent, which has already swept them all off their feet, unquote. In a final desperate move, the king of the two Sicilies begged Piedmont for a military alliance. This idea, once upon a time presented by Piedmont, was now shelved. 
The freedoms, now legal in Naples, were used to choke the Bourbon state further. Newspapers, periodicals, and posters were all used to support Garibaldi and Italian unification. On top of this, the new National Guard were all liberal to a fault, and they would soon give away whole towns in the wake of Garibaldi's advance. Many exiled Neapolitans believed very little in the new Bourbon attitude. In 1812, and again in 1848, they had created a constitution only to dismantle it, along with the institutions it upheld. Only one man, Don Liborio Romano, could control the vying factions and criminal elements in the city. The clergy respected him, he controlled the National Guard, and paid off the Camorra, enabling him to contain most violence in the city. Cavour and Piedmont made this an incredibly difficult task. As his government was entertaining the alliance Francis suggested, Cavour was arming clandestine rebels in Naples and the surrounding countryside. Cavour said of his actions, quote, If we had done for ourselves the things which we are doing for Italy, we should be great rascals. Unquote. At this time, the conspiracy was rife all through Europe. Prince Jerome was the unofficial lobbyist for Italian interest in Napoleon's court. He maintained secret communiques with Cavour throughout this entire period. Napoleon was ready to stop Garibaldi. He had the plans worked out for a naval blockade. When England found out what Napoleon was planning to do, they lodged an official diplomatic complaint. This was too much for Napoleon, who above all else wished to remain on Britain's good side. The blockade was scrapped and Garibaldi had a clear shot to advance. In Piedmont, the entire population was mobilized under Garibaldi. There were several different associations which helped fund and arm Garibaldi's men. Whole cities gave thousands in lire and recruits. Every city street was engulfed with recruits and posters of Garibaldi's deeds. Mazzini was in Genoa at the time, but this was not the Italian rebirth he had imagined. He saw a king conquering a peninsula, using the guise of freedom and independence. He saw an incredibly conservative constitution, which allowed for military conscription and the death penalty. He saw the great perversion of his life's work before him, and it left him bitter. He wanted nothing more than to go back to England and, quote, right to tell the Italians that they are idiots, unquote. He goes on to say, quote, I shall have no more joy in Italy, none. Even if tomorrow the unity were to be proclaimed from Rome, the country, with its contempt for all ideas, has killed the soul within me, unquote. In the Eternal City, Pope Pius had set about reforming his armed forces with the help of a Frenchman, Les Mauricières. He believed that masses of Catholic men would rise up if he called upon them. They did. Thousands would arrive, many being the poorest of the poor from the deepest parts of Ireland and Spain. Hundreds of other Austrian veterans were sent to Ancona to swell the Pope's ranks even further. The Pope saw the writing on the wall. His Romagna territory was already annexed against his will. Pius knew that before the year was up, he would have to furnish armies to defend his temporal authority, either from Garibaldi 
were from Piedmont itself. Back in Sicily, Garibaldi had been setting up the organs of his dictatorship. He got rid of a very unpopular tax which targeted Sicilian peasants and installed military conscription, though this was never enforced. To make sure Garibaldi was minding his P's and Q's, Cavour sent his personal friend, the Sicilian La Farina, to oversee him. He would incessantly quarrel with Garibaldi over Sicily's annexation to Piedmont. Garibaldi put up with this annoyance for only a month before La Farina was arrested and sent back to Piedmont alongside two common criminals. Cavour, in turn, used this incident to show the international community that Garibaldi was under the control of no one and that Piedmont's government could not order him around. In terms of administration, Garibaldi made sure to place Sicilians in charge of the island's government functions, with Francesco Crispi in charge of the civilian government. Militarily, Garibaldi went to work sending detachments of men to every corner of the land. When the Sicilian squads broke up, new regiments were raised from the corner boys and pub thugs of Palermo. Bixio was sent south through Corleone. The Hungarians, Tur and Eber, were sent through the island's middle, and Medici was sent north toward the fortress of Malazzo Castle. At Malazzo, there was a strong contingent of Bourbon troops under Colonel Bosco. Bourbon High Command continuously hampered them from taking the offensive. Francis II was fumbling with several different ideas. Some of his ministers wanted to reinforce eastern Sicily and march on Palermo, while others wanted to pull out altogether and concentrate their forces on Italy's boot. Francis chose neither and ordered Bosco to advance with a paltry force of 3,000, but instructed him not to engage the enemy unless they attacked first. They happened upon Medici's column of 2,000 men, and after a fierce but brief fight, they withdrew to the plains of Malazzo. Here, a heavily fortified beach peninsula made for a formidable defensive position. The Bourbon troops took advantage of these defenses immediately. Garibaldi, upon request for reinforcement, rapidly marched them to Medici's aid. He understood the strategic importance of Malazzo and the need to continue the advance past Sicily and on to Italy's mainland. The Bourbons could have, at any moment, marched numerous reinforcements to Bosco's aid. There were 18,000 men who were a day's march away in Messina. Why weren't they sent to Bosco's aid? Why wasn't the Bourbon navy, vast in ships and sailors, employed in combing either side of the beach? A single ship would have made any assault against the works impossible. None of these initiatives were attempted. This shows how truly incompetent and backward the high command of the two Sicilies was. Regardless, Malazzo would be a difficult nut to crack. The fact that Garibaldi had the same number of men as Bosco would be an immense hindrance to his offensive strategy, as both armies had been reinforced and now contained 5,000 troops apiece. The battle truly began on July 20th, with Garibaldi's left wing fleeing in panic after being led erroneously into the teeth of the Bourbon defenses. Garibaldi maintained his head, though, and managed to pierce through the Bourbon defenses at a local mill. It was taken after a single soldier, Alessandro Pizzoli, 
selflessly exposed himself to close proximity cannon fire. He was literally torn to pieces, but the rest of his squad took the two guns responsible and carried the position. The fight devolved from this point into a soldier's fight, with Garibaldi's men exposed to continuous fire from an enemy they could not see. The Bourbon troops devastated the rank and file of Garibaldi's army, but the resolve of the Red Shirts would not be broken. They continued to push every position for eight hours, with no water and very little food. But the Bourbons would not simply retreat from their posts. It took Garibaldi mounting cannon on a small steamer, the Turcori, and firing it into the Bourbon flank from the sea for them to finally abandon Malazzo Peninsula. The Battle of Malazzo was over. Bosco's forces suffered only 150 casualties, while Garibaldi had lost nearly 750 men. A high price to pay for a mile of beach. Bosco's men now retreated to Malazzo Castle, where they could have held out indefinitely if provisioned correctly. However, troop morale was destroyed and Garibaldi was quickly gaining a reputation in the Bourbon ranks as someone who could not be defeated or killed. Minister of War for the Two Sicilies, PNL, decided the best course of action would be to withdraw the garrison and return them to the mainland. On July 23rd, the castle was capitulated, and Garibaldi had won another improbable campaign. However, the suffering of his men was incredible. The irregular army had no medics, no bandages, and none of the basic medical equipment which someone shot with a 19th century rifle would need. Jessie Mario, a Republican and a nurse, did the best she could alongside her husband Alberto to take care of the many wounded who were left with little relief after the battle. She describes in a personal account a 12-year-old Sicilian boy whose arm was mangled by a cannonball. Amputation was the only possible solution. Throughout the procedure, Jesse Mario said the boy barely cried. Another young, wounded Sicilian runaway told her, quote, Garibaldi says after the Battle of Milazzo, no one can say again that Sicilians never fight. Unquote. On July 28th, Medici rode into the streets of Messina with his forces and negotiated the capitulation of the ancient city with Bourbon forces withdrawing to the citadel. Once again, Garibaldi had negotiated and bluffed his way to victory. He now controlled all of Sicily, save a few forts, which continued to hold out. Back in Piedmont, Cavour wanted more than anything for the Neapolitan kingdom to fuse with Piedmont. He wished to prevent Garibaldi from landing on the Italian mainland, while at the same time engineering a rebellion with Piedmontese support in Naples. The king, however wrote secretly to Garibaldi, urging him forward. To urge Garibaldi across the straits with thousands of men was easier said than done. The straits were still defended by the Bourbon Navy, which regularly patrolled the waters day and night. As preparation for the crossing continued, many of the Sicilian squad left for their homes. They had freed their island. They were not conquerors. To compound problems further... His pool of northern recruits, consistently sent to replenish his ranks, was cut off by Cavour in mid-August. The final scheme was in effect. 
Cavour decided to invade the Papal States and then the two Sicilies with the Piedmont Royal Army. Napoleon would give his assent, seeing it as the only way to head off the revolutionary tendencies of Garibaldi and prevent radical republicanism. At the same time, the Sicilian town of Branti exploded in civil strife. The poorest of the poor, hearing of Garibaldi's expedition, saw this as their time to take power from the bosses, landlords, and bankers that had long made their lives hell. During a religious festival, a street demonstration devolved into violence, and 16 of the leading men in town were maliciously murdered by the angry crowd. Bixio soon arrived and quelled the uprising. The main perpetrators fled to the hills, but Bixio had come to shoot rebels. He didn't necessarily mind if they were guilty. Five people were charged with fermenting the rebellion and given an hour to present a written defense. The military court set up by Bixio rejected the defense pleas as they arrived an hour too late. The five were all killed by firing squad, among them an illiterate beggar who could not write any defense. The terrible price of destruction of property and the social order was shown to the people of Bronte. Garibaldi, for all his heady feelings toward Italian brotherhood and internationalism, would not abide lower-class risings and anarchy. The character of the expedition was reinforced as a royal expedition for the king. This was only a small taste of the violence, which would be meted out against the southern population that refused to fall in line. Garibaldi would ascend on the Italian boot by way of Giardini, leaving a majority of his forces in and around Messina. The steamers the Torino and the Franklin were both acquired for this purpose. On August 18th, the voyage began in the middle of the night. The expedition landed without a hitch, a dozen miles from the city of Reggio Calabria. In a few days, they were marching in two columns on the same city. Here they fell on the garrison after the gates were opened by liberal national guardsmen. As the battle for Reggio commenced, Consens was ordered to effect another landing on the side of the boot opposite Garibaldi. After landing near where Murat had landed years before, the men were immediately attacked, but they managed to push back the enemy and head inland, where most of Calabria was now in revolt against their Bourbon overlords. The two independent commands had managed to launch near-simultaneous amphibious attacks and connect with one another by late August 22nd. Garibaldi now had 5,000 men concentrated for an attack against Villa San Giovanni. The combined forces of General Breganti and Melendez, around 3,000 men, held the town. During the course of the next few days, they would be surrounded and forced to unconditionally surrender. Many of the Bourbon troops were asked to join the Italian side, but very few did. The rest returned home and told of how Garibaldi was just and spared their lives. The next day... Garibaldi accepted the surrender of several forts in his rear. All of Calabria and most of Basilicata were now under Garibaldi's control. The race for Naples was in full swing. Thousands of Bourbon troops were surrendering every week, and King Francis was in a state of perpetual bewilderment. If he so wanted, his army of 50,000 could march forward and destroy Garibaldi's meager spread-out forses. But he never advanced at least not until it was too late. 
Garibaldi took off ahead of the Red Shirt Army with his staff and several private British citizens, braving the dangerous roads and recruiting Calabrian citizens as he passed through the seaside towns. With about 3,000 men, he achieved the surrender of 12,000 with 12 cannons without any bloodshed. Back in Naples, the famous writer Alexandre Dumas had recently landed in his private yacht. Here, Dumas petitioned Don Liborio, the true ruler of the city, to work with Garibaldi. This initiative shown by Dumas was indispensable, as Liborio agreed to recognize Garibaldi as dictator and gave the city up without a fight. This turned the race for Naples into a mad dash for Garibaldi and his staff. Meanwhile, Francis II was holding the Pass of Cava with his army of 40,000, as Garibaldi dashed through forests, mountains, and rivers unabated. Garibaldi now had 1,500 men at his immediate command. The other 20,000 were spread out all over the tip of Italy's boot. Upon their own initiative, Perdin Fabrizi, Two of Garibaldi's lieutenants spread a panic through the Bourbon High Command, which was nestled comfortably on the mountain pass. They intercepted communique between Bourbon generals and altered the communication to say that Garibaldi had 5,000 men on hand, as opposed to the barely 1,500 who were ready to fight. On top of this, they added that thousands of Bourbon troops had defected to Garibaldi's side and were marching for a united Italy. These were complete lies, but they worked. On September 5th, King Francis and Queen Maria Theresa left Naples and ordered the army to fall back to the Volturno River line. His decision to retreat was in part a strategic one. On this same river line, the Byzantium Empire devastated the Franks in 554 and went on to hold the Allies at bay in 1943 for a whole month. This retreat, while a clear step back, was perhaps a necessary one. The northern part of the two Sicilies shared an immense border with the Papal States. Many of the peasants were religious fundamentalists, often depending on religious institutions and charities for basic necessities. Francis, who had close relationships with the Papal States, eventually chose to discard the tricolor and the new constitution and stand by reactionary thinking and the Bourbon family's white flag. On September 7th, Garibaldi boarded an express train bound for Naples. Tens of thousands of people came out to see the hero of the two worlds, with his Neapolitan general, Consens, by his side. It was Consens' first time back in the great city in decades. His first stop was to his aging mother's house. The scene on the street was one of pandemonium, Imagine if the Beatles were also revolutionary nationalists. For the rest of the day and well into the night, the festival of liberation continued in the street. The peoples of Naples would shout themselves hoarse. Thousands of citizens would then put up one finger to the sky in honor of the unification of the Italian nation. Over the next four days, the remaining Bourbon garrisons would give up without a fight. Cavour and Garibaldi made one serious error. They believed the Bourbon army would desert Francis and join Italy. Instead, the army, being alienated by the majority of Neapolitan society, either left for home or stood staunchly by King Francis, even after the final rounds fell over Gaeta. They believed wholeheartedly in their king, their god, and their way of life. 
No quote-unquote foreigners would dictate what Italy was to them. They started by leading an insurrection at Ariano, where the lives of many local liberals were taken. In response, Tur was sent to stomp out the rebellion. To quote GM Trevelyan, Tur acted not only with vigor but with clemency. He shot two of the ringleaders, though the local liberals who had suffered begged him to shoot a round dozen. Unquote. Garibaldi then publicly announced his plans of marching on Rome, which he would put into action after crushing the Bourbon army on the Volturno. In the meantime, the day-to-day life of Neapolitans had gotten substantially worse. The release of prisoners meant an increasing criminal element in the largest city in Italy, with stabbings, kidnappings, and extortion transpiring daily. On top of this, many of Garibaldi's advisors took jobs only to fill their own pockets. Corruption and nepotism were the orders of the day during Garibaldi's dictatorship. This led to increased calls for unity votes, as Piedmont rule seemed much more preferable to the rule of Garibaldi's buddies. By early September, Cavour had all he needed to invade the Papal States and connect Italy once and for all. He would use a manufactured rebellion in Umbria as a pretext for an ultimatum and follow-up invasion. The ultimatum was sent September 7th, and the invasion began September 11th with 35,000 Piedmontese troops marching forward under General Chialdini. Arrayed against him was the Pope's army of religious zealots from across Europe. Napoleon approved of the plan as long as Rome and its immediate environs were left unblemished. Cavour readily agreed to this. Le Mauricier, leader of the papal forces, knew his only hope lay in Austrian intervention, and for that to happen, the port city of Ancona was to be held at all costs. Chialdini anticipated the papal army's movements. He decided to rapidly advance and force a fight at Castel Fidardo. Here, the Piedmontese were taken by surprise by the many nationalities representing the Pope's interests. The advance guard of Bersaglieri held out stubbornly until a counterattack could be effected. The charge, called by Chialdini, carried the field as the volunteers from Ireland fled to the four winds in the face of the professional Piedmontese army. Throughout the next four days, the entire papal army was wiped out, most being made prisoners. They were forced to languish in northern prisons, where conditions were beyond deplorable. Le Mauricier arrived in Ancona, but he had only 300 men as opposed to the 6,000 he had wanted to defend the city's walls. In spite of this, the few Irish volunteers fought incredibly well and held the city against a much larger force for the rest of the month. After the fall of Ancona, the way was clear for Chialdini's men to march to Garibaldi's aid and connect Italy from Sicily to the Alps. Garibaldi was in serious need of help. His front lines on the Volturno River were precarious, to say the least. He only had 15 to 20,000 men with him against twice the number of Bourbons. Additionally, brigandage and reactionary revolts were spreading in Garibaldi's rear. After a minor Bourbon victory against the Red Shirts at Cajazo, it was clear the momentum of the fighting had swung. The Bourbons were energized and ready to take the fight to Garibaldi's men. 
They would plan a double envelopment of Garibaldi's position and attempt to capture his entire force, leaving the way to Naples clear. In reality, the Bourbons had just chosen to split their forces in two. Garibaldi now had the advantage of local superiority. The last days of September were laden with heavy skirmishing and cannon fire along the Volturno lines. Both sides knew a major Bourbon attack was imminent. Medici held the red shirt left, Bixio the right, and Tur the reserves. The Bourbons descended in the fog of early morning, unseen through several goat paths. They surprised the red shirts and overwhelmed their lines at San Angelo and San Agostino. As the fog dissipated, the Bourbons' element of surprise also faded. Garibaldi was able to send reinforcements to the most beleaguered part of the line, and once he saw the Bourbon attacks begin to break up, rode hard for San Angelo. And after nearly dying in a Bourbon ambush, Garibaldi walked into town and for the rest of the day led charge after charge against the Bourbon lines. On Garibaldi's right, Nino Bixio witnessed the other end of the Bourbon double envelopment. The Bourbon general, Von Michel, decided he would surround them twice over. He split his forces, sending 5,000 men under General Ruiz around the red-shirt flank, as he and his 3,000 men attacked Bixio's position head-on. To make matters more confusing, Von Michel never gave Ruiz any direct orders. He just expected him to ride to the sound of fighting and, quote, keep up communications, unquote. The attack launched by the elite Swiss troops on Bixio's right was initially successful. However, Bixio's left was holding against the Bourbon onslaught. This would be the perfect time for General Ruiz to arrive with his 5,000, but they never showed up. After six hours of fighting uphill and outnumbered, Von Michel sounded the retreat. Ruiz and his 5,000 men were impeded by only 280 redshirts, who held out heroically in the medieval castle of Moroni. They kept up a ferocious fight for four hours until the walls were finally stormed. Pelotti Bronzetti, the commander of the redshirts, was found by the Bourbons and stabbed to death with bayonets as he attempted to surrender. The destruction and capture of the small garrison of Meroni very likely saved Garibaldi's whole position. By 3 p.m., all of Garibaldi's reserves were now committed in the maelstrom of fighting at San Angelo and Santa Maria. Garibaldi saw his moment was now at hand. He sent out his 200-strong Hungarian cavalry to devastate the Bourbons' limbered artillery. They did not stop. They continued to bowl over regiment after regiment of Bourbon soldiers. Garibaldi himself was behind this charge, flanked by 800 Hungarian and North Italian soldiers, many of whom were members of the Hunters of the Alps in 1859. As they streamed forward, the defenders of Santa Maria and Sant'Angelo now emerged from their hiding places and attacked along a unified front. Men of Sicily, Tuscany, Naples, Piedmont, Sardinia, Bergamo, and a dozen other oppressed regions marched forward in the name of fraternity and unity. It was truly poetry. The next day, the 5,000 Bourbons under General Ruiz caught wise. 3,000 followed Ruiz out of the hole they had dug for themselves. The other 2,000 mutinied, marched on Old Caserta, 
and began plundering. They were met by the professional Genoese carabiners of Garibaldi's army. The Bourbons, disorganized and lacking leadership, ran to the hills, but nearly all of them were captured in the following day's pursuit. The Battle of Volturno was over. Garibaldi had lost nearly 2,000 of his force of 25,000, while the Bourbons lost over 3,000, most being made prisoner. This battle checked the Bourbon army, but it also checked Garibaldi's. To compound on this, Isernia was in full revolt, and pro-liberal townspeople were being tormented and massacred. The men sent to put down this rebellion were sent back with heavy losses. A civil war was erupting in the south. The need for the professional Piedmont army was evident. On October 4, 1860, Garibaldi wrote to King Victor Emmanuel, quote, Since your majesty is at Ancona, you must make the journey to Naples by land or by sea, unquote. The plebiscites for annexation to Piedmont were quickly agreed upon on October 21st, after initial protests from Crispy, who wanted to remain in power. The people were to be granted universal male suffrage, and they were to be given a basic statement on which they would vote yes or no. For example, this is the statement used in Naples. Quote, the people wishes for Italy one and indivisible, with Victor Emmanuel as constitutional king and his legitimate descendants after him. Unquote. However, voting was not secret as it is today. Landlords coerced their tenants to vote yes and herded them over to the polls on voting day. As a result, only 10,000 people in the Neapolitan mainland voted no, while only 667 people in Sicily voted no. To many, especially in Sicily, the choice was between continued Bourbon rule and nothing. Cavour even promised local autonomy to many southern provinces, something which he later reneged. The Royal Piedmontese Army was now on the road to Naples. There were signs of devastation and civil strife everywhere. The army was even being harassed from the hills by rebel elements. Chialdini would not allow this. He quickly set up court-martials and shot anyone found with a weapon of any kind. This is especially egregious, considering that the livelihoods of many southern Italians in this region were supplemented by hunting and foraging. The army's vanguard cleared out Isernia, dealing with the Bourbon detachment there quickly. Meanwhile, an impromptu bridge was erected over the Volturno River by latching boats and plywood together. On October 26th, the cries of Viva il Re sprang up around Garibaldi's camp. King Victor Emmanuel had arrived to meet Garibaldi, who was in his signature poncho. Upon meeting, Garibaldi removed his cap and bowed, saying, I hail to the first king of Italy. To which the king replied, quote, How are you, my dear Garibaldi? Unquote. Before the two famously clasped hands. The handshake at Tiano was the symbolic beginning of the Italian state. Where hatred once festered, there was now compromise. Democrats and monarchists worked together to achieve the unity of a country that hadn't existed in 1,500 years. But alas, the briefest glimpses of unity were quickly dismantled in the name of order. That day, Garibaldi was told that his army was to disband 
and all future operations of the war were to be handled by Cialdini and the Royal Army exclusively. The Piedmontese army could not rest. There were still tens of thousands of loyal Bourbon troops and hundreds of thousands of loyal Bourbon citizens scattered from Palermo to Gaeta. First came the siege of Capua, which held out only for one week before the 10,000-man garrison capitulated, after which they were made prisoners. Gaeta was now the only Bourbon city that remained, but its strategic position made it nearly impregnable. The siege of Gaeta would last for over 100 days, thanks in part to the French Navy, who refused to allow Piedmontese ships to form a blockade around the city. On the medieval walls, the Bourbon Queen Maria Theresa fought with the men and directed artillery fire from the walls. She showed immense courage and won the praise of Europe at large. Garibaldi's army, after being snubbed by the king at a review, was disbanded unceremoniously. Many officers went on to serve in the Italian army. The rank and file, save the Hungarians, were sent home with a meager stipend. Garibaldi did all he could to support the new king before departing for home. He called for all regionalism and prejudice to end between Italians, and for them to come together as a nation. After all, Venice and Rome were still under foreign control. Garibaldi refused all awards, money, and titles offered to him, and left for Caprera with a bag of seeds, which he intended to grow. After the fall of Gaeta, Francis and Maria Theresa lived in exile in Rome, clandestinely supporting the Bourbon cause. The new plebiscites changed conditions for the general population in an instant. Little was done to change the impression that Piedmont had simply conquered the peninsula. When Parliament met, they continued to call themselves the Eighth Legislature of the Sardinian Parliament. The king did not even change his name to King Victor Emmanuel I. He still erroneously used the second. The capital was not moved to a central location. It remained in the northwest, the place from which all power projected. Cavour told the king, quote, If we show unbending will, people will settle down and adapt themselves to our regime. Unquote. The new Piedmontese constitution brought about new Piedmontese laws and taxes. Free trade devastated the few industrial centers in the south, while direct taxes rose by an unprecedented 54%, and indirect taxes rose by a staggering 40%. This tax hike was attributed to the Piedmontese debt, which now became the national Italian debt. The Northwest had saddled the whole peninsula with the bill for their aggressive foreign policy and railroad expansion. Although Cavour promised the southern peasants that the land would be redistributed, this never occurred. The large swathes of public bourbon land was sold off to the highest bidder, benefiting the small southern middle class at the expense of the rest of the country. Previously, the bourbon government had state land, which any peasant could work. And they worked hand-in-hand hand with the church to offer basic services like schooling and welfare. The Bourbon peasants technically belonged to the king. It was in his best interest to take care of his poorest citizens. With this new government, all of that changed. It was a winner-take-all system. 
the government justified its taxation of the poorest citizens by arguing a country could not survive with a large state debt, nor a mediocre middle class. Such thinking was the blueprint to the free-trade right-wing liberals of the 19th century. Oppression, which would become far worse and much more deadly than that of the Bourbons and papacy, was rampant in Italy. With this oppression came the breakdown of the myth of the Risorgimento. Quote, Poetry had given way to prose, unquote, as the famous saying went. The reality of a unified Italy was nothing close to the romanticized image. As oppression increased, resistance from the southern lower classes stiffened. This led to more northern troops, which led to more killing, which led to more revenge. You see how quickly the situation spirals. There was almost no common ground between a Piedmontese citizen and their Sicilian counterpart. Their ways of life and language were completely different. For example, the worship of God in the South is still rooted heavily in saint worship, holy figures, and even witchcraft. This was considered backward paganism by the Piedmontese. The Piedmontese dialect was also much closer to French than Italian, and nothing near Sicilian. In the Piedmontese dialect, the word for boy is sit, and in Sicilian, it's picchiotto. Imagine the confusion when Brasaglieri from Fidemont attempted to round up a town in a language only the soldiers spoke. As the bells of Gaeta signaled their final resistance, the true war for Italy's soul lay on the horizon. Although historians commonly refer to the coming war as the Brigandaccio, or the Brigand War, I believe it is much more accurate to refer to it as the First Italian Civil War. In this conflict, horrendous atrocities would be committed by both sides. It would be incorrect to call this a reactionary uprising, but those forces were still at play, as many citizens did not want a unified Italy. More accurately, the lower class was fighting for the rights they had had before. The Italian government viewed this conflict as a fight against a hostile enemy. When they sent their northern troops to deal with the brigands, they would melt into the hills, leaving northern troops furious. They then proceeded to take their anger out on the civilian population, who the Piedmontese believed were barbaric and aiding the brigand comrades. There were no major engagements in this war and no field armies vying for territory and dominance, which makes it much harder to talk about. Indeed, the sources are very scant, most being filled with nationalist and racist sentiment. For example, the following is a quote from Nino Bixio, whose pure rage made him a perfect candidate for clearing up insurgents. Quote, It will take many many years to bring these places up to the level of civilization that we are familiar with. There are no roads, no hotels, no hospitals. What kind of government has God willed upon the people here? They have no sense of justice or honesty. In short, this is a land that needs to be destroyed, or at least depopulated, and its inhabitants sent to Africa to learn to be civilized." Unquote. In early June of 1861, the Count of Cavour fell unexpectedly ill, and his health declined very rapidly. On June 6th, Camillo Benso took his last breath. 
the founding father of a nation which needed his leadership now more than ever. On his deathbed, he made a stunning about-face. What the people of Naples needed, he said, was honest, free government, not oppression and violence. His confession was not taken to heart, and the leadership of Italy passed on to much less capable hands. The millions owed to banks in France and Great Britain were weighing down the new state, and the massive military was being used almost exclusively to round up brigands. On August 13th, 45 Piedmontese soldiers were killed after being taken prisoner by a Bourbon brigand band near the small town of Ponte Landolfo. The brigand commander turned to the Piedmontese soldiers and supposedly said, quote, You will be judged by the ones you starved. Unquote. The townspeople proceeded to overwhelmingly support their deaths. Pontelandolfo has a history steeped in legend. Located in the Molois region of the Abruzzi, it is said to have been founded by the descendants of Hercules, the Samnites. It is well known in history for its connection with natural disasters and wartime massacres. The town had long been controlled by the local archbishop and the local landlords, who now conveniently switched their allegiance to the national Italian cause. The town was in full rebellion. The local liberal elite were shot or run out of it. Their sister town, Castelduni, was also involved. Both towns were a quote-unquote sea of white as the Bourbon flags flew. The reaction from the Italian authorities is one of the most horrifying in modern history. On hearing of the killing of his troops, Chialdini was incensed. He called for a quote, not a stone, to be standing on a stone, unquote, in both Pontelandolfo and Castelduni. This was an ancient Roman order for complete destruction, reserved for the most hated enemies of Rome. Not a single man was to be left alive, and both populations were to be rounded up and sent to prison camps. Chialdini sent 500 bersaglieri, the elite infantry of the army, not against an enemy formation, but against the civilian populations of both towns. Luckily, the people of Casolduni were forewarned and managed to escape in time, before stragglers were shot and the entire town was destroyed. At Pontelandolfo, however, the people were given no such warning. As the Bersaglieri approached the village, the rebels defending it drifted into the mountains, leaving the people without any form of defense. The men of the now unified Italy showed their disdain toward the quote-unquote barbarian southerners by unloading their rifles into the crowds of working men, killing many. They went through the houses, waking families from their sleep or pulling them away from breakfast tables. The entire town was herded up like sheep into the central forum, where a day before the southern population had celebrated a victory over the quote-unquote French Piedmontese. In a drunken rage, the 500 Brassaglieri fell on the townspeople, killing and looting indiscriminately. They set fire to a house, murdering several old women who remained inside, too infirm to leave. Men wearing rings had their fingers chopped off with swords, 
Those with gold teeth had their cheeks cut open and their teeth ripped out while they were still alive. In a local church, the women of the village sought some sanctuary. Even here, the Piedmontese soldiers would not stop. A mad scene of rape and torture happened on the very altar. A woman's hands were chopped off after she dared scratch at the eyes of her rapists. Another 16-year-old girl, judged by the Brasaglieri to be the prettiest, had her legs tied to a tree and was raped for hours in turn by the 500 men before being mercifully executed. In the horror of the scene, one has to ask who was the true barbarian in this situation? How can so much horror be perpetrated by the same people who claimed to be fighting for liberty and unity a few months ago? In the end, no one knows how many people perished in the massacre of Ponte Landolfo. Either it wasn't recorded or the Italian government to this day is ashamed to reveal the awful truth. Numbers vary anywhere from 13, which is unbelievably low, all the way to 1,000, and some still much higher. The population was sent away in trains to prison camps. Several hundreds more would be shot after mock trials. The town still has not recovered, boasting only 2,000 residents in 2020, when in 1860, upwards of 10,000 people lived peaceful lives for centuries. In Piedmont, there were honest men and women who attempted to stop this fratricidal war, as Garibaldi called it in 1862, in front of Parliament. Among them was Massimo Diazeglio, who said in a letter to a friend, quote, The question of keeping or not keeping Naples must, it seems to me, depend above all on the Neapolitans. Unless we want, according to our convenience, to change principles we have proclaimed up to now. I understand Italians have the right to wage war against those who want to keep the Germans in Italy. But the Italians that remain Italians do not want to join us. I believe we do not have a right to give muskets unless it was granted that we adopt the principles that Bomba used to bombard Palermo, Messina, etc. Unquote. The work of Garibaldi, D'Azeglio, and other like-minded people fell largely on deaf ears. The newspapers and businessmen in the new state supported their government 100%. They argued that a war against brigandage would help stabilize the country and remove undesirables from the equation. So what if Sicilians decried military conscription? So what if Lombard merchants were now saddled with the much weaker lire? So what if Tuscany, the freest state in Italy, now had to institute a death penalty against the wishes of its people? Italy and Italians had to be made with brute force, or else it would fall victim to colonization by larger nations or slip into the decadence of the Renaissance. The quote-unquote new king refused to change any of his old habits. He still would not traverse the south. He instead preferred the alpine mountain ranges in which he had grown up. He would not stop his adultery. It was such a problem that many Italians joked he truly was the father of the nation. 
he would also not break with tradition. He was a Piedmontese king who believed in authority and God and not much else. He would govern the way his father governed and train his children to govern in the same way. In 1861, the former revolutionary Garibaldi was enjoying a peaceful life on Caprera. Away from the partisan politics and civil war in the peninsula, his star was now at its brightest. He was considered one of the most famous people in the world. To the downtrodden, this was especially true. Famous anarchist Mikhail Bakunin even recounts a Siberian peasant longing for the arrival of Garibaldov. In England, Garibaldi's name became a sensation, as the revolutionary enjoyed unbounded popularity there. Garibaldi was so popular, in fact, he even had a current-filled cookie named after him in 1861. His star did not ebb from there. In the United States, the Civil War had just begun between the enslavers of the Confederacy and the Union. Garibaldi was approached with a major generalship commission by Lincoln's government. He would accept, but only if slavery was immediately abolished, and he had full control over all Union forces. Seward and Lincoln deemed this request too much, so instead Garibaldi would continue to intervene in Italian politics long after 1860. He believed Rome was the key to a truly united Italy. Parliament found itself performing the incredibly difficult task of trying to run a nation without the help of its founders. Already seen as dysfunctional and a cesspool for discord, the first years of Italian governance did little to change the public's opinion of their quote-unquote leaders. The first years of Italian governance consisted of roadblock after roadblock, in fact. The prejudices the people held against legislative bodies were well known in Italy. Governments based on fair representation was seen as the reason why many of the city-states' attempts to govern in the medieval era were so unsuccessful. Another problem that presented itself was finding a way to create an Italian parliament when representatives were elected locally. There was no reason for a member of parliament to support national works, as they did nothing for their constituents. Rome was seen as the quintessential piece in the Italian puzzle. Once proclaimed the capital of the new kingdom, civil strife would miraculously halt. Italian civilians would be reminded of their glorious past, and a new quote-unquote third Rome would rise. At least that's how Mazzini, Garibaldi, and many Italian politicians felt. From the beginning, Rome was romanticized as the center of Italy by early Italian patriots. The history contained within Rome as well as the city's recent brush with success as a republic, made its acquisition necessary. Cavour considered it the moral capital of Italy, while Diazeglio detested it as the central miasma of 2,500 years of corruption. Like many writers and intellectuals, he preferred Florence, which was already the center of Italian culture, to be the new home of the Italian government. Another group preferred an entirely new capital, built on a patch of land somewhere in central Italy, like Washington, D.C. The vast majority, however, gravitated toward the Eternal City. In 1862, Garibaldi was sailing for Sicily again, attempting to recreate his landing of the Thousand, and using the mutinous South as a cover for his second march on Rome. 
he crossed the Straits of Messina, landing in Calabria once more with 2,000 men. The southern military governors, La Marmora and Chialdini, would not stand for this. They would treat the Garibaldini like insurgent rebels. 3,500 national Italian troops marched to stop Garibaldi on August 29th. Garibaldi gave strict orders to his men not to fire on fellow Italians. Their gripe, he said, was with the Pope. The Italian commander, Pallavicini, gave no such command. His bersaglieri came on firing. Some of the Garibaldini returned fire, and in ten minutes, twelve Italians had killed each other, and Garibaldi was seriously wounded. He threw himself in front of the two firing lines and was struck twice with musket balls, once in the hip and once deeply in his ankle. The firing quickly died down, and Garibaldi surrendered. He was arrested and held in a military fort until he was pardoned in October. The wound in his ankle left Garibaldi severely impaired for the rest of his life, but the people's admiration for him only grew, while the hatred for the new Italian government intensified. This inflamed southern opinion still further. The uprising in Sicily was so terrible that martial law was declared. Military tribunals were set up and dozens were shot, many of them being women. Marching for Garibaldi or singing Garibaldi's hymn, a very patriotic Italian song, was now banned across the island under penalty of imprisonment. Italian authorities were beyond paranoid, and society was quickly collapsing. On a single night in Palermo, 13 people were stabbed to death, possibly by the mafia or some other criminal elements. In Parliament, politics reflected society. Piedmontese General Gavone gave a speech where he inferred Sicilians were barbarians and that their society was backward and devoid of culture. A strange statement coming from the general who was responsible for, quote, besieging towns, cutting off water supplies, and seizing women and children as hostages, unquote, as well as proudly boasting to have shot, quote, anyone with the face of a rebel, unquote. In the uproar that ensued after Gavon's speech, the Sicilian Crispy challenged a northerner to a duel, and the benches cleared like a baseball game following an errant pitch. In the aftermath, 21 Democratic senators resigned in protest, Garibaldi being among them. Many took issue with the fact that too much power was held in Turin, and by the Piedmontese especially. They controlled all aspects of life. Everything was Piedmontese. Even the flag had the Piedmontese cross emblazoned in the center. In 1864, a solution was put forward by the well-meaning but overall incompetent Prime Minister Marco Mingetti. He would guarantee the Pope's territory. In exchange, Napoleon would move his garrison out of Rome. It would be a, quote, free church in a free state, unquote. Another stipulation was that the Italian capital be moved to Florence. This incensed the population of Turin, and subsequent rioting in the street led to the deaths of more than 50 people in the former capital. Mingetti resigned as a result, and General Alfonso La Marmora formed a new government composed mostly of Piedmontese and two Lombards. It was very hard to justify any sense of national unity when this was the state of affairs. To compound issues for the Italian state, 
Pius released the Syllabus of Errors in December of 1864, which rallied against liberalism, democratic government, and the recent annexation of his holdings. He called on true Italian Catholics to abstain from the quote-unquote abnormal process of voting. The problem, as Diazeglio saw it, was the lack of duty of everyday Italians. In his speech to Parliament, he says, quote, Italy will never become a well-organized and properly governed nation until everyone, humble, middling, or great, each in his own sphere, carries out his duty. Italy's most pressing need is to mold Italians. Sadly, we are each day traveling in the wrong direction. Unquote. Under Larmarmora's leadership, the drive toward centralization did not stop. Civil and commercial codes were standardized across the peninsula. The prefect system was also introduced. Prefects were men, almost always northerners, who were placed in charge of provinces. Their powers infringed on the civil liberties of the press and local councils. They likewise controlled elections, as they were able to add or remove names from ballots at will. This led to intense corruption as being a friend for the Minister of the Interior was often all you needed to be appointed as a prefect and given the power of the Italian state. One way in which authorities felt Italianization could occur was through the military. Conscription was mandatory, and the penalty for draft dodging was often hard time at best, or at the worst, death. In the military and through battle, it was felt Italians could overcome their prejudices and sense of regionalism. Many government officials felt a war with anyone was what was needed to bring the country together, and only through the glory of victory on the battlefield could Italians truly be made. In the rest of Europe, things were heading quickly toward another momentous conflict. The Kingdom of Prussia, under the reactionary leadership of Otto von Bismarck, had been meteorically rising since acquiring Schleswig and Holstein from Denmark. Otto would now play his hand against Austria in the German Brothers' War in his bid for dominance in the German-speaking world. Italy saw their opportunity and quickly joined Prussia in their fight in what is called, in Italy at least, the Third Italian War of Independence. By all estimates, Italy should have been able to easily bowl over the approximate 70,000 Austrians defending Venice. They had at least 400,000 men ready for combat operations as war was declared on June 20th of 1866. Garibaldi was in the field once again on the far left of the army with his hunters of the Alps. He would operate in the Tyrol region of what was then Austria. The two frontline Italian armies were commanded by Larmamora and Chialdini and contained respectively 120,000 and 80,000 men. They were all spread out along the Mincio. From the beginning, the Italians were ill-prepared. Larmamora rejected a military convention proposed by Otto von Bismarck, and the command structure of the Italian armies was a complete mess. Larmarmora didn't even resign as prime minister until June 6th. There was also little coordination between armies and commanders on the field. All these factors led to another absolute disaster. Once again, the Italians advanced to the quadrilateral and moved to hold the hills of Custoza. The second battle of Custoza ended up being incredibly similar to the first. 
In the first battle, the Piedmontese army was defeated after stringing its forces across a large front and not reacting fast enough to the overwhelming Austrian attack. In the second, the now Italian army had strung their 120,000 men all along the line of march, to the point where only 60% of their forces were present for the actual fight. The Italians controlled the heights around Costoza, but in very few numbers. As the Austrians came forward, the Italians fell back and lost the important high ground. Only toward the end of the fight could the Italians seriously threaten to halt the Austrian advance. However, the damage was done, and La Marmora was nowhere to be found. Throughout the fight, he desperately went up and down the line searching for the king, or Chialdini, or any senior colleagues who could right the ship. As a result, Lar Marmora joined the many thousands who were missing. He was heard muttering to himself, quote, What a disaster. Not even 49 was this bad. Unquote. A disaster it was. 8,500 Italians were made casualties in a single day, while the Austrians suffered casualties ranging from four to 8,000 men. The Italian nation was shocked that the fight which was meant to bring Italians together made things even worse. Accusations flew of betrayal and incompetence on the high command's part. The next shoe to drop was the disastrous naval battle of Lisa. There, the outgunned and outmanned Austrian navy sank two expensive Italian ironclads and killed over 600 Italian sailors. It holds the distinction as the last naval engagement to include ramming vessels. The Italian Admiral Persano was dismissed for his incompetence in fighting a battle that he never wanted to start in the first place. In the quest for victory, Italy was as defeated as ever. The war quickly ended some weeks after, following the massive battle of Koningratz, where Prussia showed its dominance in the field, inflicting twice the amount of casualties on the Austrian soldiers that they received. The armistice that followed was even more humiliating for the Italians than the devastating field and naval defeats. Austria handed Venice not to Italy, but to France, and Napoleon gave Venice to Italy as a gift. After the embarrassment of the Third War, the government's credibility fell to a new low. Francesco Crispi, one of the most patriotic Italians in history, wrote that, quote, To be Italian, in the present circumstance, it is shameful, unquote. As if to make matters worse, a gigantic rebellion exploded in Palermo. Some 40,000 Sicilians, many of the same squadre who fought with Garibaldi, took the city by storm. It was a mass uprising of the entire society, much like the uprising in January of 1848. And similarly, it was put down with brute force. This time it was not La Bomba punishing his rebellious subjects, but a supposedly free state bombarding Palermo from the land and sea. Many were executed. But the exact number is unknown. Again, the numbers were either never recorded or they remained shamefully under lock and key. The cause for the rebellion? It wasn't taxes or ill-treatment or military conscription. The reason for the violence, according to the authorities, was a secret shadowy organization known as the Mafia. What the Mafia was and how it operated was still a complete mystery to northern politicians. 
but it was for sure a criminal organization and would become the official government scapegoat for all things Southern and all things violent in the coming years. The Mafia Boogeyman was part of the mass campaign against the South. By the end of 1865, in fact, 100,000 Italian army personnel were needed to be deployed to the South simply to maintain order there. The same number La Bamba previously used in his armies for the same reason. The Brigand War would not stop with the rising of Palermo. Indeed, there would be disturbances and brigandage throughout the countryside for decades, well into the 20th century. But after the near destruction of Palermo by Italian authorities, the main push by the brigands was over. Many of these same brigands are now considered folk heroes, where they were once shot and grotesquely pictured with their smiling executioners. In the end, official numbers state that between 1861 and 1865, 5,000 people were executed. In this tally, it says nothing of the many thousands who were killed as a result of retribution. Luckily, new historians have stepped in and tried to fill in the gaps, determined to see the full truth of the picture. For example, this is a quote from the book Political Military History of Banditry in the Southern Provinces of Italy, written by Italian officer Angiolo De Witt. He describes the routine way violence was afflicted upon southern civilians, especially when aid was given to the brigands. Quote, A young shepherd had warned the brigands of our presence. The shepherd boy was just 17 years old. There was no doubt he was either a spy or a young brigand. This idea was shared by all my soldiers. I did not commit an indignant thing by sending him to the ground with a stroke of my saber, which opened his skull and left him there more dead than alive, unquote. Lest anyone think this was a random occurrence of violence, these were the official orders for the entire population of Crima. Quote, One, anyone who aid or house brigands will be shot. Two, anyone who gives signs of tolerating or favoring the slightest attempt at reaction will be shot. Three, Anyone who is found in the streets or the countryside with food supplies exceeding their needs or with ammunition for firearms will be shot, unquote. The new estimates range as high as 200,000 southern Italian civilians killed as a result of Piedmontese occupation and subjugation of the south. This again says nothing of the 5.5 million Italians who escaped the capricious cycle of violence bound for America, and the millions more who migrated to Great Britain, France, and Canada, most being from the south of Italy. Why does it matter that the real numbers are known? Why not leave it alone? After all, it happened so long ago. But the after-effects of this violence and chaos are still lingering in Italy today. To this day, the south of Italy and its citizens suffer, in part because of the forcible aggrandizement of Piedmont at the expense of the rest of the peninsula. The southern question is one that is still asked today with the same veiled racist and xenophobic sentiments with which it was asked in the 1860s. 
Now instead of the Sicilians' barbarian culture, it's the tax burden the North Italians have to bear thanks to the South's continued backward poverty. Anyways, I believe the real numbers should be released. I think the people of Sicily, Naples, Calabria, and the Abruzzi deserve it. With everything that transpired up to this point, can it be any wonder why in less than 50 years Italy would become the first fascist nation in the world? The groundwork was laid by La Marmora, Victor Emmanuel, Chialdini, and in a different respect, Mazzini and Garibaldi. The former's viciousness led directly to the fascist death squads of the 1920s, which worked hand-in-hand with the nation's police and military units to murder socialists and trade unionists in the streets by their thousands. The latter provided the unrealistic, romanticized image of the Italian race, culture, and religion. In the next and final episode of Turning Tide's Italian Footsteps series... We will detail how the Italian nation found its footing and took its first steps towards becoming an empire. In the following years, Rome would be captured, Africa would be colonized, and the political scene in Italy would be chaotic, as incompetence, corruption, and poverty caused the situation to decline rapidly. But that will have to wait until the next time. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening.